Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Nolcast. Bud, we got a decent amount of questions from the previous show that we did earlier this week that we still have to get to, have some commit conversation to uh, take place. One about a prospect out of a Louisiana defensive end, and then uh, we won't spend nearly as much time, but want to celebrate some of the basketball success, uh, getting yet another really significant add-on uh, to the roster there. So as always, we'll thank our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana, Three Simple Ingredients, One Fantastic Product. Louisiana Hot Sauce, the title sponsor of the Nolcast. And uh, with Bud, we'll uh, jump into it. Let's do it, man. Got, got some exciting news uh, to talk about today. Actually, Ingram, we got a, uh, got a commitment. Florida State got, got a commitment here at, at a position of need. And I uh, feel like that's a pretty good place to start off this show. Yeah, so uh, we'll break it down from a, a couple different angles. It's a, you know, look, I know the fan base is always going to be a little skeptical when you Talk about a three-star prospect, whether or not you're trying to convince people to be optimistic about something uh, when maybe otherwise they wouldn't be. But uh, Brian Turner Jr. is the kid we're going to talk about uh, out of the New Orleans area, defensive end. And, uh, hey, I know the stars next to his name, but a a pretty intriguing prospect at the same time. And I think a a nice, solid add to a class that has a bunch of nice, solid ads in it. Yeah, so uh, Brian Turner out of uh, New Orleans, St. Augustine High School. We'll talk about that a little more in a second, that high school connection. Uh, but pretty good-looking prospect, uh, 6'3 and a half, 237. Uh, he has a six-foot, six-inch wingspan, which is nice, obviously. You know, I, I, somebody once told me you, you only recruit height to get length, just on the idea like, like low man wins in college football generally. And, you know, you think about some guys, you know, over, over the course of, of Fort State and also just college football who have, have been longer uh, than they are tall and that that usually helps I mean six foot six for for a defensive end uh, you know to be honest is not an incredible wing uh, but it is better it's, it's a better wing than than six three and a half uh, height would would normally suggest I mean you, you want to be you want to be plus right when, when we do our scouting we talk about guys being plus you, you you want the wing to be longer than the height. You don't want the inverse where the kid is tall, but he's got like T-Rex arms. And, and so Brian Turner certainly does not have those T-Rex arms. He, he also has pretty solid testing numbers. He, he's a guy uh, who was at the All-American Combine, uh, and I saw him in person this year. Uh, so you mentioned he's a three-star, and, and he is. Uh, but I, I think it's actually important to note this because a lot of people seem to think that 24-7 is hating on Florida State's commitments this year. And uh, certainly, they are lower on some of them than than the industry is. But uh, in this case, twenty four seven sports, full disclosure, my employer uh, is actually higher on Brian Turner than the industry composite by uh, by a decent bit. Twenty four seven has him at an eighty nine. The composite had him as like an eighty five. So at twenty four seven, he's sort of on the verge of four star status, and in the composite, he's just sort of a, a, a middling. Three star. So I haven't looked. Either Rivals or ESPN probably has him either unrated or or very low. One of the two. I'm kind of excited about this take. I, I think it's it's a pretty good good take given their circumstances and, and it's them leveraging some, some connections. But context is important, man. Who do they who did they beat out to get Turner? Interesting set of schools. You see some of the SEC West there, Arkansas and A and M, and then uh, Baylor and Texas. So look, you know, everybody's going to process the idea, oh, did LSU offer? Did you beat them out? No, they didn't. Not really a place where the program's going to go into Louisiana and beat LSU out for kids right now. But I always understand where people want to process that as to whether or not the the home school or the NC State 
are the in-state school offered. You know, not somebody that uh, that didn't have his options, definitely. And why the three-star status? And and for somebody that completely consumes themselves with how many stars this kid has next to his name, I'd be shocked that if we don't go back and visit the Turner conversation in maybe two or three months that he's not ultimately a four-star. But, uh, you know, we can come back to that conversation if and when it takes place. Uh, so when we talk about a three-star prospect, exactly, Bud, uh, why is that the case with him as of now? Yeah, so there's a lot to like about him, um, obviously, but there's also some stuff that I, I think you want to see more. Uh, stuff I really like about him, uh, obviously, the, the, the length is good. He plays with, with really high effort. He, he's a guy who does make a lot of plays on, on second effort, on, on not quitting on the play. Now, that's a really good trait to have. That, that can't be the only trait you have, and, and it's not. He's also a pretty strong football player, right? I mean, 237 at six three and a half is, is a pretty built guy as a junior in high school. For him to get four-star status, I just reading our evaluations of him, watching him a little bit, I, I think that they want to see more quickness off the edge on a consistent basis, right? Showing that burst, really getting off the line first and, and using that quickness, that that's what your elite edge players really have. I'm not seeing that from him yet, but I think he shows it sometimes, and I think he's capable of being a, a pretty damn good football player. I liked him at, at the Army All-American Combine. He went up against some of the better players on the offensive line there uh, who I had graded, and, and, and he did fairly well. Uh, so I would say, like, normally should FSU fans be happy with a three-star? No, given this very strange year in which Florida State's coaching staff has not had a chance to show it can recruit and meet these kids in person at, at all. Uh, I, I think this is a, a good job by them of going out and getting a player who you're not going to have to drop in two years, right? Who you're not going to have to most likely recruit over in, in, in a year or, or two. I, I feel like he's a player who has the upside of starting for you. And I have a very hard time seeing him come in and not making any kind of impact. You know what I mean? Just because of, of how hard he does play, because he already has that functional strength, because he's already a good player. Uh, my questions with him are more, it, does he have the the upside of a superstar or, or a star? And I'm not totally convinced that he does, but I think this is a pretty good take for them. Uh, before we circle back and talk about the broader defensive end position and where they are with it, let's talk real quickly about the high school that he's from, uh, both in the fact of uh, some pre-existing relationships there and each individual kid that comes out is by no way is a, a replica of anybody else that's come before them. Everybody has their own different, you know, motivation, drive, focus. There are some things that you can say about a kid from St. Augustine. You know, nine times out of ten, they're pretty damn tough and they're they're pretty hard workers. I mean, they come from a program that has high expectations um, and pushes kids and in, in a good manner. I'm, I'm being, you know, I, I think it's a really good thing that you that you got a kid out of this program and. I know there's some some even stronger ties with with David Johnson and his familiarity with the program in that part of the state in particular. Yeah, so David Johnson actually coached St. Augustine, right? But before he got into the college game, he he, he was a coach at St. Augustine High School. So I, he has not visited, right? Turner has not visited Florida State, and yet I think, and Florida State has been very adamant that they do not want to take guys who have not visited. They do not want to take guys who they have not met in person who they don't know, and, and that has limited their recruiting board in some ways. And, and we'll see if they decide to change on that as it looks like the dead period will just keep getting pushed back. 
this was their initial plan, right? With, with, with the idea that, okay, we'll make up ground when we, when we can actually meet these kids in person. If, if they don't get to meet these kids in person and the signing day period doesn't change, which I'm not convinced it does, then they probably will need to start taking some gambles on some guys who they have not met. Now, in this case, he has not visited campus. I'm pretty sure most of the staff has never seen this kid. But I think because you do have that connection of literally David Johnson coached at that high school, he's probably going to have a pretty good line on whether this guy can play, whether the character-wise is somebody you want to take. Uh, and they ended up taking him. You, you mentioned the the LSU aspect there. Like, did LSU offer? Uh, also importantly, did, did Bama offer? No. Uh, and I want to take a second to talk about this. I, I think this is interesting. I don't think... L- Florida State recruiting Louisiana long term is a viable plan. Okay, is that does that make sense? I, and, and I I want to explain why. Long term to get where you want to go, you need to be pulling. You need to pull studs. Okay, and the studs out of Louisiana for the most part are going to go to LSU or Bama. You are not going to beat LSU and Bama for the top level players in Louisiana, even when you're really good. Florida State didn't do it when they were trying like. When they were winning a billion games in a row, whatever was it, twenty eight games in a row, but like they they still couldn't win in Louisiana for guys that LSU and Alabama wanted. So long term, I don't think Louisiana is a winning strategy for the Seminoles. Period, because that you're not going to get a high enough quality player, you know, out of there to make a difference in your program. I don't think you go and take a Brian Turner. If you're 2023 and Mike Norvell has this program somewhat turned around. Okay. I think this year, however, taking, going to Louisiana, taking a Brian Turner, going after Destapazin, like those guys, that makes a lot of sense to do. I do want to counter the narrative a little bit that like Florida State is laying, laying ground roots in in Louisiana and Louisiana is going to be a big time recruiting battleground for them in future years. I, I don't buy that because I think if, if you're, Heavily recruiting Louisiana, knowing that you cannot beat LSU and Bama, history shows this, uh, even when you're at your best, that you're not taking a high enough quality player if you're routinely going to Louisiana. Okay. That's not, that's not how to get back to the top. However, in your quest to rebuild right now, I think going to Louisiana and taking some guys who you think can help your program from 2021 to 2023-ish makes a heck of a lot of sense, especially during the pandemic, because you can't get out and visit a lot of these kids from Florida. And this staff doesn't have very many state of Florida recruiting ties. So nobody's laid eyes on a guy like, like a Dante Anderson or, or, or those types. So you have to kind of go with what you know. Um, and so for that reason, I, I think recruiting Louisiana for this year makes sense. I, I'm just not a buyer in, in the long-term idea of recruiting Louisiana because I don't think you'll win. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. I mean, it's uh, it's a kind of a transition strategy here. You don't have, you know, the upside into graduating into a place where you're going to, you know, get the best talent out of Louisiana. It hadn't happened for Florida State since the mid-90s, and it really hadn't happened for anybody since Nick Saban took the job in, what, 2002 or whenever it was. So, uh, the you know, the map has certainly changed, and I can see the conversation, but I don't think there's any major expectation for Florida State to be a force in Louisiana recruiting. It's kind of a this isn't a perfect analogy, but you got to sign the Everett Dawkins of the worlds before you go and sign the Timmy Jernigans and, and, uh, and Goldman's of the world. I think Turner and this class is, is kind of a, a little bit of, of that strategy uh, to where you get good program players, you get guys with good upside, 
uh, that are going to come in and work, and, and then maybe you can pivot some of the bigger names in the college football world over the next two years or so. And when you mentioned Everett Dawkins, it's important to note you took Everett Dawkins. He was actually a pretty good player for you, but you, but you were not able to go back to South Carolina and land a Jadavion Clowney or a Marcus Lattimore or uh, who was the teammate uh, who went to UCLA, uh, the defensive lineman. I don't, I don't think he ever, ever made the league. Is that the Miller kid whose recruitment was so interesting? Or did he go to Tennessee? Well, there's Corey Miller, and then there was another, there was like a D tackle too. But Florida State didn't get any of those guys. That's a perfect analogy, right? Go, go get it. Go get your, maybe Brian Turner could be your Everett Dawkins type from Louisiana to, to plug a hole for this year. I'm just saying, count me out of this narrative that you're going to lay the groundwork in Louisiana and start to beat LSU and Bama. Cause that's not going to happen, guys. And I, I just, I think that's just kind of fan service. So, uh, the state of defensive end recruiting in general, uh, nice, nice little assortment of talent at this point. Uh, you have Joshua Farmer, you have Brandon Jennings, a kid who we project ultimately to defensive end and had a pretty exceptional one at that. Uh, a couple of remaining targets in the, uh, Schaumburg Jackson kid and the Zion Reeves. Uh, just give us an idea kind of where you think they are at defensive end and what the ultimate the ultimate class might end up looking like at that position. Yeah, so I, I think they need to take at least one more, perhaps two more. It just depends on on where you feel uh, a guy like Schomburg Jackson will play. Uh, ultimately, I think he's more of an inside player. Uh, maybe he could play that sort of strong side role for them. I, I wouldn't completely discount that, but, but I do think that he's probably more of an inside player. Uh, I'm like, Driving the bus for the Zion Reeves fan club. I, I think this kid's awesome. I think he's a four star. I think I've said this before on on uh, on the Barton and Bud podcast. Like, I argued for him to be a four star on on rankings council. I, I think he's a guy who who uh, ultimately will end up as a four star if they play any kind of high school football in North Carolina. Just his size, athleticism relative to the size, and improvement in body control is really nice. He's like a legitimate six foot, six and a half type kid. And it, who was the guy who played for Miami and then ended up playing for, uh, for the Arizona Cardinals? Kalias Campbell, I think is his name. He's got a little bit of that in him. He, he's very nice a, a, as a player. I, I think he's one of the most talented players remaining who Florida State is, is recruiting and, and they have done a good job of identifying him. Maybe I'm too high on him, but ultimately, like that's another three star that I would be very excited about. Uh, and I, everybody has Shambray higher because, like, on their personal boards, I guess. And I think he's a good player because he's currently rated a four star. I actually think Reeves is is a higher upside guy. There are other kids in the state of Florida. You get you got the kid at Cardinal Gibbons whose name escapes me right now, and then you also have the Dante Anderson player. Those are guys who I think Florida State might have gotten involved with earlier had they been able to see them. But this staff has not been able to meet any of these Florida prospects in person. And so they're largely relying on prior relationships who they have. Uh, we also, I want to point out too, some of these guys that you think, why aren't they offering? It's been a little bit tougher to get some transcripts on kids this year too. I, I've spoken to coaches, you know, Florida State and elsewhere that you know, say, hey, look, we're, we're having a little bit tougher time getting transcripts on, on kids this year. Because a lot of people are out of office and just the communication is not as good with, between them and the high school. So I, I think there's some kids, like the Andrew Jones guy who, who committed to Memphis. Remember the linebacker? 
a couple months ago out of, uh, out of, out of Louisiana. Ultimately, I, I think if his grades were, you know, okay, maybe they're, maybe they are able to, to green light him, uh, or not okay, but maybe his grades were in a better spot. So there's some guys on the defensive end board who I like, and I kind of suspect maybe the reason that I don't know about this, that some schools aren't going on them quite as hard. And, and we'll find out a little, little while later that their, their transcripts either they're not getting them or their transcripts have something scary on there that these schools don't want to commit to. But this is a good get for Florida State and Brian Turner. Good job by Coach David Johnson going out and, and getting him. They, they did beat some legitimate schools there uh, for his commitment. And I think this is a player who could help Florida State in the near term, ter- ter- in the near term as well. You're going to lose Janarius Robinson. You're going to lose Josh Kando after this season. I think Brian Turner can give you snaps as a freshman, not starting. But I think he's a guy who can give you uh, triple-digit snaps as a freshman and, and, and not be a huge liability just because he's already physically strong and, and he has the effort level. I have some good news to report, but in, a, in an area where good news has been solely missing, and that is the, uh, the Tallahassee restaurant scene. One of our old friends and familiar names, Centrale, is uh, back up off the mat and uh, poised to make a return Looks like it'll be coming back on August 13th. Somewhere around there, that would be a Thursday, so that would be a great thing to see. So all of our uh, our friends over there for the Table Restaurant Group been trying to figure out what's possible, what they can do. Centrale is uh, is going to be back in the mix, and that's fantastic to hear. Madison Social, always the the one that we focus on, uh, but Man Township and Centrale both have some some great options and really excited to see that back on the on the scene and uh, give you three great options right there from the college town selections. That is awesome, man. And, and like as soon as students get back on campus, get, get, get that pizza, pizza delivery if you're within the zone. Uh, congrats to Matt and those guys. I, I know this has been an extremely tough time for a lot of restaurants out there and they, they've been a loyal supporter of ours and, and we are huge fans of, of Madso Township and Centrale. And, and a lot of y'all have supported them by buying gift cards and uh, t-shirts and, and things, and I'm I'm excited to get back there. Uh, so we'll we'll transition from some good news to maybe some some good news, maybe some optimistic news. A couple different reports out there recently uh, about what the ACC or what uh, kind of all these conferences, what their preferred model, how they think they're going to go about getting you know 2020 in the books, and it looks like at least for now the ACC's preferred, favored, whatever terminology you want to use, model, is to play 10 conference games with a you know plus one outside. So I would originally interpret that as as a, a game against UF. I guess that means that you wouldn't have your, your West Virginia game, although I'm, I, I think anything's in the air, and if Florida State can play that game, uh, then they will. But uh, again, some questions about that game that aren't necessarily Florida State Pacific. We'll see how it plays out over time, but uh, 10 conference game plus one is the model, bud. Kind of uh, what are your thoughts on that? If that's uh, a real viable option at this point in time or, or what you think of it? Well, I, I think it, it makes some sense in that there are rivalries in this conference you want to protect Florida state, Florida, uh, Georgia, Georgia tech, Clemson, South Carolina, Louisville, Kentucky. Am I forgetting any here? I, I think it makes sense in that, it, that it kind of balances the interests of, of most of the teams. Um, while still giving the conference for the most part control over you know what 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 happens, 
as far as scheduling. We, we talked about this, I think, two episodes ago, why, why, why you're going to go to conference-only scheduling just because of, of the control over testing and the control over rescheduling uh, and, and you know, moving around the schedule some. Now, that would really suck, man, to lose West Virginia. That's a $4.5 million payout, assuming that, that the payout for that doesn't change if you only have maybe 25% capacity or, or 0% capacity, as it may be. Uh, but it's no surprise that the ACC is trying to accommodate a non-conference game in some way. Now, personally, do I think you're going to be able to get 11 games in this year? No, I do not. Okay, I think like this is my preferred model. Okay, you know who else is my preferred model? Kate Upton. Okay, but like let's let's be real with this. I think if you get eight games in this year over 14 weeks, everybody should be pretty damn happy. If you get six in. I still think you should be kind of happy. I think if we get games in this fall and have some semblance of completion of finality of a season, I think you should be pretty happy. 10 plus one is absolutely a best case scenario. Wouldn't you agree? Getting 11 games in in the fall is, is pretty best case. Absolutely. One thing I'm interested to see is if more universities, I don't know if it's appropriate to call this the Clemson model, but, uh, if, if more universities don't push back students coming up onto campus a little bit, uh, there's some thought there that, you know, if you can keep students out for, for a while, that it gives you a little bit more of a chance to kind of get this proverbial aircraft off the ground. And then once you do kind of have some of the flexibility that takes place, and there's some holes in that theory, in my opinion, but uh, it is something that Clemson moved on and there's some broader conversation with some other schools about doing that. So just something to watch, see if you push back the general student body coming to campus, uh, not purely for football reasons, but it, it happens to fit pretty well with the idea of, uh, of trying to get a season off the ground. You know, something else that, that could happen, you, you might want to just invite students back to campus immediately, have your outbreak, get your dorm money, get your student fees money, send them back home, like, like say, okay, we're, we're going to go to online classes only. We're not saying you can't stay in the dorms, but a lot of these kids, if the parents are really, if you're online classes only, you know, like, and you're at a big COVID zone, come home. That reduces the number of people on campus. It reduces the interactions your athletes have with those people who are presumably not being tested all the time, right? And that, that's the population you really can't control, which is the, the student population at large. You, you decrease the number of people on campus. That makes it a little bit uh, less likely that your athletes will contract the virus and you, maybe you push back the season from September to October after the head fake and you're just sitting there counting your stacks for, from that dorm money that you're not going to, not going to uh, refund to those folks. That's possible. I actually had an administrator talk to me about that. Not at Florida state, by the way, just want to be clear on that. These schools intend to keep that dorm money. If, if, if they go online only, if, if everybody moves in. So a uh, little we'll switcheroo perhaps there. And I do think that it is important that college football not have too many restarts at large. So I think you can get away with one within, like, if you said, okay, we're going to start September, and then you had, like, an outbreak on your campus, you could say, okay, we're going to start college football in October. I think, I think you can get away with that. I don't think you can be like, hey, we're going to push back another week, another week, another week, another week, and then, like, all right, we're going to start November 10th. That, 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 to me, is not really feasible. At that point, they would just push to spring. So we'll have to see what happens here. This 10 plus one model is pretty interesting. We have the NCAA Board of Governors 
meeting today. We will see if anything comes from that meeting. I'm not convinced that it does, but I'm, but I'm not convinced that, that it doesn't either. And there's another meeting uh, next week among the conference commissioners. So we will see uh, what goes down at that one. So a lot, lot of uncertainty. But one thing that is not uncertain, Ingram, is that y'all should use legendary home loans for your home loan or refi needs. I did for my home loan and for my refi. Really great experience working with Shannon Young and Chad Rielinger. And those guys are great, man. First of all, when you call them, you're going to get a little bit of Knowles talk, but you're already getting some Knowles talk on the podcast. You can get a little bit more, but what you're going to get is tremendous customer service, knowledge of the industry, great rates, the ability to pull financing from a number of different sources because they literally own the company. More than 60 Nolcast home loans and refis have been done in what, just under three years. I think now we're, we're coming up on that relationship with them. So we, we average more than one a month and the reviews for these guys are awesome. Like they, they, they almost have as many five star reviews online as we do. Go check them out. 844 FSU loan. That's 844 FSU loan. Make a legendary decision. Legendary home loans. Proud supporter of the Nolcast. All kinds of positive news on today's Nolcast, uh, Bud. Uh, we'll talk about this briefly. Won't go into quite as much detail, but uh, Matthew Cleveland, really exceptional, talented basketball prospect, uh, four-star, five-star, depending on where you look. It gives Florida State really two of the better guard prospects in the country uh, with Cleveland and then a kid out of South Carolina by the name of Bryce Gallons. Cleveland is out of the Atlanta area, goes to Pace Academy, uh, which is a very well-to-do, nice uh, nice private school right in the heart of Buckhead. With that, if you're somebody that loves breaking down high school basketball film, wouldn't pay too much attention to that at which he did with uh, Pace. That's one of the smaller private schools and, and plays not the greatest competition, but uh, a kid that's really emerged a lot and continue to make himself one of the more rare, valuable prospects in the class. And uh, I don't think there's too many more you know, euphemistic phrases that we need to say about Florida State basketball and what Leonard Hamilton's done. It's just absolutely incredible. I'll point out and, you know, geography and high schools don't matter nearly as much as they do in football recruiting, but Pace is about a mile and a half down the road from the Lovett School, which happens to have a kid by the name of Ryan Matumbo uh, there, which I think you'll probably recognize the, the last name. So, if they were to get that, uh, Matumbo's a seven-footer, big prospect, would complement the two guards in that class exceptionally well and just a name to keep an eye on. But uh, another great class put together uh, by Leonard Hamilton and, you know, beating all kinds of blue bloods for a kid uh, like Cleveland's just, uh, you know, yet another n- another feather in their cap. I should probably just Google this, but but in, in lieu of that, I'm going to ask you, is, is Mutumbo, is, is he going to be – like one of these Kansas, Kentucky level kids? Uh, he's going to be, yeah. I mean, Georgetown, unsurprisingly, is one of his options. Yeah, he's looking at, he's not like ultra high five star, but he's looking at the so that kind of second tier, second tier of basketball schools. Uh, not not going to be an easy get. That's kind of where, where Florida State makes its living when, when it does really well, though, right? Like they're not routinely beating Kansas and Kentucky for kids, but they do a really good job you know, pulling some upsets and, and at some point they're not even upsets anymore. Just beating out kids or beating out schools that are sort of in that second tier and, and getting really good results from them. So that's, that's good to see. So it's a school at this point where other people have to, uh, to kind of reassess whether or not they want to continue to recruit against them. I mean, it's, uh, it's just ridiculous what they've done on the recruiting trail and they've certainly found a lot of, uh, 
you know, a lot of success recruiting in the state of Georgia and Atlanta over the last 10 years or so. So great for the basketball program. Excited to see ultimately what becomes Cleveland. We just talked a lot of recruiting there, obviously. And, and what we have not had a whole lot of this year is, is decommitments, which I think is a good job by Florida State, both football and basketball. But if you find yourself maybe having a decommitment or, or you think one might be coming, it's really important to know a very good family law attorney. We happen to know one of the best. Travis Johnson is a board-certified family law attorney. Only 280 of those out of more than 110,000 attorneys in the state of Florida. I'll, I'll let you run the numbers on that, but that's a pretty low percentage there. More than a decade of experience. Noel grad twice over has cases throughout the state. Whether it's a smaller divorce or a multi-million dollar divorce, he's handled it as well as a number of other elite family law issues. Travis Johnson can be reached 850-435-9919. 850-435-9919. Travis Johnson of the Metter and Johnson firm is a proud supporter of the Nolcast, and be sure to take his number down because if you if you say you heard him on the Nolcast, you get a free consult, and he offers flexible payment rates to fellow Nolcast listeners. So give Travis a call if you need him. Even if you don't know you need him, still take the number down. You might need it in the future, and we thank you all for supporting our sponsors. All right, uh, we'll get to some of these listener questions here, Bud. Uh, I don't think we covered this one before. Uh, Ryan asked the question. Has the Taggart buyout influenced the way Florida State is managing the financial ramifications of COVID-19? Will Willie's be the last astronomical coaching buyout we see from Florida State? Oh, okay. So I, I would say yes in that any kind of money you have to pay out is absolutely going to impact how you manage things. Like I think to, to answer no to this question would be disingenuous. Are there different things you do specifically? If you didn't have to pay the buyout, I'm actually not sure on that. This represents an interesting question. If you had a crystal ball and you knew that the whole COVID shutdown thing was coming, there's no way in hell you fire Willie, right? I don't think so. I mean, it sounds uh, it sounds kind of cringeworthy to say, but one of the big concerns about keeping Willie is that some of your some of your modeling predicted home attendances of like high 20,000s, low 30,000s for, for a couple of games. Uh, obviously, that's not really a concern at this point in time. So, yeah, again, hard hard to be able to look into that crystal ball and know, know that a pandemic was coming. But, no, I don't think there's any way that Florida State moves on Taggart's contract with the idea that there, in all likelihood, won't be attendance in, in 2020. Yeah, or, or certainly not any kind of significant attendance. Um, in in 2020. So yeah, I, I would agree with you there. Will it be the last astronomical buyout we see? Interesting from two perspectives. Number one, the last one that Florida State pays or the last one in college football? I would say it will definitely not be the last one in college football. I do think there's a chance that the whole pandemic stuff and what it's doing to some of the economy and what some of these schools look like financially that they start to not offer, like the, I think the market will shift some in terms of the amount of guarantees available to some of these coaches in, in some of these contracts. This will not be the last one. There will be there will be contracts signed that still have huge buyouts. I mean, heck, Norvell's buyout's not tiny. Uh, if if they had to go that route, you know, five six years down the road or whatever, will it be the last one? Four state pays. Man, I, it's just, it's hard to predict. What do you think? I mean, hopefully we're back in a time where college athletics can 
you know, operate without massive concern. I do think there's going to be a greater level of scrutiny to these contracts. And like, if you're, uh, if you're familiar with the Paul Hewitt contract that Georgia tech gave in basketball, like 10 years ago, I don't know that we're ever going to see some kind of like set it and forget it where we auto re you know, renew you each year. And I don't know that you'll see something like that. Uh, that just puts the university in a horrible situation. There's always going to be the chase. And uh, as long as people are taking part in it, then part of that chase is ridiculous one-sided contracts. So I doubt they go away forever. I do think there's going to be, and and this will be a little bit institution specific, but a uh, much greater scrutiny as to some of the contacts, uh, contracts that are given in athletics. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's certainly fair. Uh, the other thing you got to consider is at some point, like you, you have to realize the only reason college coaches are paid this much is because the labor isn't paid. And I'm not trying to get political here. This is just pure math. If you actually had to pay the players who are the stars, you wouldn't be able to afford to pay these coaches so much. And schools do this massive spend down thing to try to pretend like they don't, that they're not massively profitable. And technically they're not massively profitable because they, you know, have $10 million coaching staffs. Well, maybe you shouldn't get paid $10 million as a coaching staff to coach college football when the athletes aren't, aren't getting paid much at all. We are going to hit a bubble in the college football coaching salary. We might already be there. I'm not, not ready to declare that yet. But as it becomes clear that at some point, you're probably going to have to pay the athletes at least something, that's going to start to come down because the money's got to come from somewhere. And right now, if you look at it, like what's really bloated? The construction boom, which I think Florida State desperately wants to get their football facility done before this, this bubble pops. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll see when that happens. Uh, and then also the, the coaching salaries, $2 million coordinators, you know, eight, $8 million head coaches, things like that. Th- those aren't tenable at most places at all, but they're certainly not tenable anywhere if you're having to pay your, your stars money. I, I know Chris Hummer, interestingly here, uh, wrote an article the other day speaking to some marketing people, and they said guys like Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence are worth at least a million dollars a year right now in their marketing capability. If that's just what they could make on marketing, what, what do you think their actual market rate is for, for their on-field play? And I'm not suggesting they're ever going to get a market rate for on-field play because that, that's not going to happen, I don't think, because I'm not sure the college model is sustainable if it does. But I think it is possible that they get some kind of very reduced amount on that. And if you're having to pay a reduced amount on that, well, you, you can't pay your head coaches quite as much. It's an interesting question. It is. Uh, and, and Ryan, something that we'll have to watch and it's going to play itself out over time. Uh, Connor asks on a positive note, I like your, like your line of thinking here, Connor. On a positive note, what would be the coolest part of spring football for each of you? Mine would be going to uh, get to have tailgate stirred peak crawfish season and possible football, basketball, double headers. Um, so, yeah, weather would be really cool. Um, I'll certainly let you let you answer this spring, whether it's fall. Something I've taken from watching uh, soccer is, uh, <clears throat> you know, I'm not not trying to twist this. I'd rather college football take place with fan capacity at 100% and, and get the atmosphere and pageantry that we all associate with the sport. But if you like listening to the real sounds of sport and getting a better idea as to what's going on, it's a pretty unique time to be able to, uh, you know, listen to the manner that a, that a soccer ball is struck and uh, get a much greater appreciation. And uh, 
you know, when, when pads pop, you'll get a better feel for it than maybe we, we ever have otherwise. So I, I do kind of look forward to the, the acoustics of sport and being able to get a little bit better ideas of what's going on on the field. I like that answer. That's, that's pretty cool, man. Now, do you think they'll put in fake crowd noise to avoid guys saying words that might offend people? <laughs> uh, I'm sure they'll, they'll funnel some, some crowd noise in there. And, uh, you know, the, the advancements in this have taken place over the last five or 10 years. And, and the fact that there's, you know, microphones and cameras stuffed in, in every, every device that they can think of. But the Nigel Bradham hit on bird, I would, I would love to hear what that really sounds like if you don't have, uh, quite as many people in the stands and, uh, it'll be, it'll be fun to, fun to, uh, to listen to and get an appreciation of. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to go with, I, I think having the, the sports world sort of all to yourself. Now you would have to compete with the NBA, but I think for the most part in a lot of regions that the college football is more popular than the NBA is, you would have baseball just starting up, but I don't think most people watch baseball intensely in March and April, which is basically when you'd be playing your championship games. Uh, so I, I think like having it all to yourself, man, like you, you would be competing with the NFL playoffs in your first kind of three or four weeks, which would be interesting, assuming you start kind of mid January because the, the Super Bowl is what second week of February, first week, one of the two. Uh, but man, having it all to yourself, kind of having that spotlight, like college football would, would really, it would be the thing to watch in spring. Uh, and I agree with you. The weather is, I mean, the question just sets up for what, what would be the coolest part of it? Well, the coolest part would be not, not, not sweating your butt off in, in training camp and covering training camp and whatnot. Uh, that, that'd be pretty cool. And, you know, the championship games, playing them in, in April, it, it's just not that hot in April. That, that would be the, the kind of coolest thing. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Tailgates for sure as well, like, like you mentioned, would be awesome. So Chris asks us, uh, maybe for a whole episode, could you rank or draft players by position all time? Uh, like two all-time teams going head-to-head uh, or even just go through a position and choose the best two or three together at each position? Yeah, I, I, I would actually love to do a uh, an all-time draft for a single group. Probably not today, but Chris, I think it's a cool question. <laughs> no, I think that's great. That's evergreen content that we'll hold on to and uh, that would be, you know, that would be a fun episode to do. Definitely. Especially if the season gets pushed back. Yeah. Uh, if you want to send us fun ideas like this, <laughs> we are extremely open to them because we will probably use them at some point. Uh, this one is from Josh. Josh writes, uh, how is it that the major Power 5 conferences came to be? How is it that they seem to govern themselves without much interference from the NCAA? Do you see a future scenario where the P5 breaks from the NCAA entirely? And whether that happens or not, do you see FSU staying in the ACC when conference realignment inevitably happens? Earlier in this decade, I really wanted FSU to bolt for the SEC for financial reasons. Yes, uh, it would make winning much harder, but the atmosphere on many game days would, would be infinitely better. And I think they added us in Clemson. If they added us in Clemson, it would mean that even ten and two would probably be worthy a record for the college football playoff. Your thoughts on all the above and future conference alignment, if any? Uh, this is actually another pretty cool episode we could do if you wanted to talk about like how the conference came to be and, and Florida State's role. In it, obviously, they were an independent, and then prior to that, they were in the the uh, Dixie Conference way back in the day. A couple things we can answer now, Josh. Uh, to your your second part of this question, actually on twenty four seven Sports, and and I I think Josh is probably a subscriber. He, he, he writes us a lot, and uh, and I know he's a big college football guy. Uh, Brandon Marcello yesterday, so that would be Wednesday or Thursday afternoon, 
wrote uh, why the NCAA doesn't control college football and never will again. And uh, it, it's a kind of an explainer type piece followed by a, a column. So a two for one there showing how the 1984 Supreme Court decision uh, of uh, Georgia and Oklahoma Board of Regents versus the NCAA, basically uh, the NCAA lost its power to tell uh, schools what they can do with respect to their TV rights because the NCAA's TV contract limited the number of times that each school could be on TV. And at this point, uh, college ball stars were really becoming stars nationally. So you, you, know, you, you had to watch a Brian Bosworth. You had to watch a couple of years prior uh, a Herschel Walker and things. And so the NCAA's argument was essentially that it would be unfair to some schools to allow other schools to appear on TV more, which is extremely anti-American capitalism to put that kind of cap on that kind of thing. However, that's what the NCAA was arguing for a while and then ultimately lost in the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Kennedy writing for the majority. So you can read about that on uh, on 247sports.com. I also retweeted it from my account at Bud Elliott 3 if you want to check that out. Pretty good, uh, uh, pretty good thing there. That was their big, their big hammer that they'd hit you with too. They'd hit you with the bowl ban, and then they'd hit you with the TV ban. It was like you didn't, you didn't freaking exist at that point. Was uh, was Auburn ninety three? Is that the last time we really saw a big time program get the, get the TV ban? I think so, but I, I, I'm I'm interested in, in how that worked out actually, because at that point, I wonder, I wonder if, if enforcement still had that capability. I, I don't believe they have that capability now. Oh yeah, no, good luck. Yeah, good luck. Good luck doing that now, and with all the all the friendly litigation that would uh, would come about as a as a byproduct of it. Yeah, that might be problematic. By the way, something we forgot to talk about, and I had it in my in my, my little show sheet here, and I, I didn't put it on the main show notes. Uh, Fabian Lovett and, and and Jerry and Jones immediately eligible got their waivers approved from the Nolcast Twitter account. I, I know I know we tweeted uh, this was kind of expected, but still, there's nothing ever guaranteed with the NCAA. Impact on this year's season, I would say nothing but positive. Lovett's already a good player. Yeah, nothing but positive uh, gives you two good players and only continues to you know lift up the lift up the floor at the defensive line uh, position. It'd be fascinating to see what kind of rotation they get there and and what that looks like. But uh, two two real positive plug and plays, and try not to get wrapped up in the wave of optimism that can occur in the off season, but hard not to get excited about what a Florida state defense might look like if we are ever so fortunate to be able to play ball. So Ingram, another thing to think about here, and I'm actually writing about this this probably be out Friday uh, or maybe Monday, depending you really might have to play like a hundred guys on your roster this year. And so teams right now are are preparing for this. And and I've, I've talked to a number of coaches about this. The, the way they run practice, the way they run meetings, that the stuff they install, all of these things are going to be extremely interesting. And uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this plays out. Any kind of depth you can acquire on your roster, like Fabian Lovett might be starting for you in October if you have a couple guys go down with, with COVID and, and or injury, right? Like you, you might have a situation where, not at Florida State in this example, but well, actually, yeah. Let's keep it in Florida State with, with defensive tackle. Like you could have like a walk-on defensive end starting next to Marvin Wilson, starting next to True Thompson, starting next to Josh Kando. Right? You got an All-American. You got a guy who has been hurt a lot, but you know is a good player. You got True Thompson, who's kind of a backup with, with, with some ability, and then you got a walk-on. 
at, at defensive end. Like the, the, the capabilities and the combinations are pretty vast and there's pretty good chance you don't know who's going to be playing for you up until like the night before game day or the morning of game day as these test results come back. So like how the hell you run a practice like this is going to be really interesting, man. Really interesting. I, I'm of the opinion. I'm not going to give away my piece I'm writing. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet it out as well. Simple. Keep it simple is going to be so huge this year. Like designing an offense around one superstar is out. Keeping it super simple and not allowing a whole lot of, of variation so that if you do have guys in and out of your roster, they can all execute a play. That's in running some stuff that, 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 that don't, that does not ask a ton of your, of your backups as far as ability. That's pretty important. You know, don't, don't ask your, your walk on safety to, uh, to play in the box and, and then carry a vertical and man coverage. Like that's, that's going to be tough. Man, that's a challenge for these coaches. And they were so geeked up to, uh, to, to do all, like they were doing all the self scout in the off season and, and like they didn't have anything to do, right? Their kids weren't on campus. So they were just like studying all this film and trying to figure out these new plays and new, new wrinkles and, and all this self scout and, and, uh, and now they're just going to have to shelve that for 2021 probably and run some really simple stuff. So. Very interested to see how Mike Norvell and his offense and defense do that. Which, by the way, I know we got asked to do a, a scheme episode. We want to do that. I kind of want, like, do we want to do that? We kind of want to wait to make sure when the season's going to be played. Do we want to talk about like how much they're actually going to be able to implement so you'll know what you're, what you're looking for? I guess if we focus it just on the base stuff, that'd be fine. Uh, but man, that was uh, a lot of stuff to think about here. This is an unprecedented time. A lot of stuff. Absolutely. Well, that will be another episode of the Nolcast and the books. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Still got a couple questions that we'll, uh, we'll look forward to, uh, addressing on our most, uh, the nearest future, uh, episode that we do. Thank you as always to our sponsors. Thank you to the listener. If you get a chance to give us a review, uh, whether it be on Apple podcast or any other hosting service, certainly appreciate it and, uh, look forward to talking to you in the near future. Thank you very much. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Noles.